Today, we want to talk about the attributes of goodness. Is goodness a passive thing? Is goodness a problematic thing in any way? Does goodness have some kind of power? You know, in 1983, Harold Kushner wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, which has been reprinted six times since and raises this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? I guess they're unlucky. Bad things happen just out of uh, coincidence and... Part of life. It's a life process. Just uh, the way life is. Probably goes all the way back to the garden. (laughs) It's human nature. It's almost a necessary evil. Something bad has to happen to you in order for you to really value the good things that come. The world's not perfect, so we're going to be affected by things the world throws at us, I guess. And then hopefully, you know, when the bad things come, you can take it in stride, knowing that just because things are bad today doesn't mean that they'll continue to be that way. I don't think that God has, like, picked people out to, like, suffer. I do believe that he has a plan. Now, I don't know if uh, God allows things to happen. I think just, things just happen. God is all loving, and that's what everyone teaches. So there cannot be a correct answer why he allows suffering. Bad things allow um, people to realize how good God is, I guess. Certainly a variety of perspectives on why bad things happen to good people. And one of the worst things that's happened to our country in our lifetime were the 9-11 attacks. And while in New York a couple weeks ago, Charlotte Keaton and I visited the site of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the memorial there. And pictured on the screen is one of the two reflection pools which occupy the previous footprints of World Trade Center Towers 1 and 2. And around them are the names of people who died in those on 9-11, including all the first responders, those in all the planes, those in the Pentagon. And the white flower that you see there next to the name of a person who died on 9-11 was there because it was their birthday on the day that we visited, something which the memorial does for each person listed there 365 days a year. Let me tell you, it's very, very moving. And the story of two survivors... Port Authority officers William Gimeno and John McLaughlin were retold in the movie World Trade Center. And these two men were the last two persons from underneath all the rubble. And after a very long recovery for each, in the closing scene of the movie, they gathered together and honored them. And John McLaughlin states this reflection there. Nine eleven showed us what human beings are capable of. The evil, yeah, sure. But it also brought out the goodness we forgot could exist. People taking care of each other. For no other reason than it was the right thing to do. It's important for us to talk about that good, to remember. Because I saw a lot of it that day. Indeed, a lot of goodness did come out of the aftermath of that enormous tragedy. And as John McLaughlin said, it's important that we talk about that good and that goodness. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the attributes, the essence, the character, the constitutional makeup of good and goodness. And to talk about good and goodness, we have to talk about its authors, as we see in Psalms 100, verse 5 in the Living Bible which tells us the Lord is always good. He is always loving and kind. And you see, the good that exists, in fact, everything good that exists, every thought, every word, every action, every deed that's good, they all can be traced back to God 
all have its roots in God, in the character of God, and in the essence of God. And that's true of all goodness, even if those expressing that good have no knowledge of that or recognition of that, because God is the source of all goodness, period. And that goodness joins us together with God, even though many would deny him. And thus in our doggy dog world and do anything to get ahead society we live in, goodness is sometimes not so revered. For goodness is also sometimes viewed as something that's passive, something that makes people passive. And this is where we get the expression goody two-shoes, referring negatively to a virtuous person. But such goodness doesn't make us passive as much as it makes us passionate about having a heart of goodness and having that goodness fill us, guide us, and direct us in our lives. And the expression goody two-shoes actually comes from a story first published in 1765 about a poor orphan girl who had only one shoe. Her name was Marjorie Meanwell. And after a rich man gives her a pair of shoes, she goes on to become a teacher. And she does so much good that she eventually ends up marrying a very wealthy widower, proving that such goodness in life does have its rewards. And the truth is, God's goodness in and through us does have great rewards. I'm sure you remember the children's prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. And the reason that God is great is because of his goodness. God's goodness is the source of his greatness. And as Psalm 100 verse 5 tells us, his goodness is also the source of love and his kindness to us. So goodness really is at the foundation of our lives. Although the world and our day-to-day lives in this world seem to confuse that and blur our understanding of that. And so goodness can slip in our thinking from being this passionate force into being a passive way for us to think about things. Sure, we all want things to be good in life, but that goodness can slip into becoming a kind of afterthought that just kind of enters our head here and there. And that's where goodness becomes a problem. When it gets innocently placed on the sidelines of our lives instead of front and center in our lives. Evidence of this problem comes to light in several ways in us, like when I start taking credit for the good things that God does in my life. Not things that I have done, but good things that God does in me and to me and with me and through me. And when I do that, it leads to a path of self-centeredness, a path of selfishness, and even a path of destruction as we see in Luke's 12th chapter, verses 16 through 21 in the message, where Jesus told this story. The farm of a certain rich man produced a terrific crop. He talked to himself, what can I do? My barn isn't big enough for the harvest. Then he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll gather all of my grain and goods, and I'll say to myself, self, You've done really well. You've got it made. Take it easy. Have the time of your life. But then God showed up and said, fool, tonight you will die. And your barn full of goods, who gets it? You see, that's what happens when you fill your life with self and not with God. A pretty clear and sober warning. So let me ask, what's the very worst sin you could think of committing? Some of us, it might be a sexual sin. Perhaps it might be harming others in some way. But the Bible points to something quite different over and over and over again. 
And that is prideful ingratitude. Specifically, not being grateful to God for all his goodness. In fact, pride and ingratitude is the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. Thus, it's truly the root of all temptation and sin. Because prideful ingratitude is at the heart of Satan. And it's the heart of his desire for us to follow in his footsteps of evil and not in God's footsteps of good. But Satan doesn't advertise that. He doesn't come on with a sign before us so we can see that. Rather, he slips it in quietly into our lives, especially when we get too busy to focus on God's goodness in the everyday things of our lives. Acts 12, chapter verse 21 through 23, in the message echoes this. Herod, robed in pomp, took his place on his throne, hailed them, and the people shouted flatteries, the voice of God, the voice of God. But God had enough of Herod's arrogance and sent an angel to strike him down. For Herod had given God no credit for anything at all, and he died. You see, God didn't take Herod's life because he was immoral, which he was. He didn't take Herod's life because he was greedy, which he was. He didn't take Herod's life because he was a tyrant, which he was. God took Herod's life for the most serious thing of all, because of Herod's pride in who he was. You see, as a self-made man, you worship yourself as your own maker. And you're thinking, I did it all. And that puts you on some mighty thin ice. Some would say, but hey, wait a minute. I built this business with my bare hands. But who gave you your hands? I thought this all up by myself. But who gave you your mind? Well, I worked really hard for this. But who gave you your strength? Everything you are and all you have in life didn't originate with you. It started with God and was given to you. Your next breath would not come to you were it not for the goodness of God. You wouldn't be sitting here were it not for the goodness of God. You wouldn't exist were it not for the goodness of God. Yes, everything you are And everything you have in this life didn't originate with you. It started with God and was given to you. And you know, the Bible also tells us that prideful ingratitude is one of the signs of the last days. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 in the New International Version puts it like this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, ungrateful, unholy, unforgiving, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness that denies its power. Kind of scary, isn't it? Because this so much describes the times that we're living in today. And among that long list of things that describes all of these variations and flavors of pride and ungratefulness we see in these words the basicness of it all people are proud and ungrateful but notice it says that we all have this appearance an appearance of godliness a form of godliness in which we say yes i'm a christian i love god i follow god yet in spite of that we are proud and ungrateful and even if we're unaware of that what happens is we deny the power of god's goodness we hold back the power of his goodness in our lives So beyond my taking credit for the good thing that God does in my life, leads me to the second problem I have without goodness being a prime focus of my life every day. 
And that is I stop asking God for help. We forget that out of his goodness, God wants to help us. In fact, over and over in the New Testament, we're told, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. But we commonly think, hey, I want to ask God for the big stuff. I don't want to bother him for the small stuff. But you got to remember, even our big stuff is small to him. So you can ask him for anything that's either small or big to you. And one of the greatest examples of this in answering prayer for something really, really big happened around here when we were unsure what was going to happen to our church. When humanly it looked like East Point was going to go belly up like so many things did in the recession of 2009. But what God did when asked was to tell us in no uncertain terms to spread his goodness and his love beyond ourselves. And not just here and there haphazardly, but regularly every other Sunday. And God's giving us what we needed to do that, which seemed way too big for us, wasn't too big for him. And so we are here today, strong, having shared his goodness with thousands of people on Sunday mornings beyond ourselves. And beyond the every other Sunday thing, God also said, I want you to share my goodness somewhere else. And that is every other week with some homeless people in Fern Park. Unsure how to do that? God once again guided us in what we needed to do as well. And you see, nothing. Nothing is too big for God. So we need to ask him. And the way we learn to better ask him is a whole lot like the process we've gone through with our parents hundreds, if not thousands of times before. This is illustrated by something called the circle of security and how children learn to trust their parents. Here's how it works. First, a child recognizes an unmet need. Hey, I need help. I can't do this myself. Step two is a child expresses that need, usually by squawking, because they don't have any words yet to let you know that my diaper's soiled or I'm hungry, I'm bored in my crib. But they do let you know. And so step three is the parent meets the need. Uh, You pull them out of the crib, change the diaper, feed them, soothe them, whatever it is you need to do. Result is the parents meeting that need is step four, which the child learns to trust the parent. Now, you and I personally went through that circle thousands of times growing up. And that's exactly the very same circle that God wants you and me to use in trusting him. The only difference is instead of going through that circle thousands of times, as we did with our earthly parents, many of us have only gone through that circle less than a hundred times with God. And God has wanted us to trust our parents for sure, but he also wants us to trust him even more completely than we did our parents so that we can engage in that circle of trust, seeking his goodness so much more so than we do now. So thus, nothing is too big, as we've seen with God's goodness, spread over and through and beyond us in this church, but also know there's nothing too small in seeking God's goodness. Case in point, my wife, Patty, who's helped me, her knuckle-headed husband, who used to constantly misplace his wallet and his keys. So many times, I can't even count. And it would typically go something like this. I'd look for my wallet, and I'd look for my keys, couldn't find them. I'd look everywhere. I'd look inside the house, outside the house, in my car, in our sofa, and briefly worn clothes, hung back up, dirty clothes at the bottom of the hamper. I'd look in my chest of drawers, in my nightstand, under my chest of drawers, under my nightstand, behind my chest of drawers, behind my nightstand. I'd look upstairs, downstairs. I'd look in the kitchen. I'd look in the bathroom. I'd look in the trash can. You get my point. There was no place any human being could find them. And so I finally mentioned it to my wife, Patty. 
who always say, okay, let me pray about that. And she would. And every time, without fail, within a few minutes, she would walk right over to where they're hiding, put her hand on it, and voila, saying, God showed me where they were. And God has done that for us way more than 20, 30 times. You see, there's nothing too big for God, and there's nothing too small for God. God's motivation in answering our requests, whether they're big or small, we see in David's 69th Psalm, verse 16, which tells us, Answer me, O God, out of the goodness of your love, and in your great mercy for me. You see, God's desire to answer us comes out of his goodness. It's all about God's goodness to you, not your goodness. It's based on his goodness. And when I lose sight of God's goodness in my life, I want to take credit for the good things that God does for me. Secondly, I stop asking for God's help when I need it. And thirdly, I stop trusting God in difficult times. You know, if you and I, if we were more aware of how good God really is, it wouldn't be an issue for us. It would be automatic. Every time we had a need, we'd talk to God about it. It would just be natural. But you would never, ever try to solve anything by yourself like we do first. Romans 8, 28 in the NIV puts it like this. We know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Not only all things good, pleasant, and pleasing, but also in all things bad, unpleasant, and anything but pleasing. God works for those who love him. And it doesn't say that God causes all things bad, unpleasant, and displeasing, nor does it say that God causes anything at all that's bad, unpleasant, or displeasing. But when those bad, unpleasant, displeasing things happen in our lives, God is there to help us pick up the pieces and to rearrange those pieces in a new way, in a better way, in a good way, compared to the way that they lay before. So God should be our first go-to when difficulties go-to take us over. So when I lose sight of God's goodness in my life, again, I take credit for the good things God does in my life. I start asking for God's help. I stop trusting God in difficult times. And fourthly, I become a pessimist about the future. Yes, when you forget about how good God is, you can so easily become pessimistic about your future. In Psalm 27, 13 and 14 in the New American Standard, David says this, I would have despaired if I had not believed that I'd see the goodness of the Lord. You see, there'd be no hope, David said, if God was not a good God. I'd simply be stuck up the creek without a paddle. But still, David said, I know God is a good God. So instead he thought, wait for the Lord, be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. You see, the problem that we sometimes have in dealing with difficult times in our minds is that we turn a delay into a denial. And that makes us pessimistic about the future, pessimistic about trusting that God's goodness is going to rearrange those broken pieces of whatever it is into a better order and a better way than they now lay. And so if you've experienced what Psalm 27 mentions, if you've experienced despair, disappointment, discouragement, depression, doubt, please don't confuse that delay in your getting a quick answer or a quick solution, a quick solace with a denial thinking this is just the way that it's going to stay. Rather do this, start focusing on all the ways that God has been good to you. Keep your eyes off the problem, off the pessimism, and get your eyes onto the graciousness of the blessings and the good things in your life, which when you start looking at them, 
that way you'll realize they've come to you from the goodness of the hand of God. List all the ways that God has been good in your life. Focus on that. And then like David in Psalm 27, believe. Believe because of the goodness of God, you get through whatever it is that's before you. And that's hope. Hope is anticipating God's goodness in whatever you're going through. And your experience of God's goodness comes as you quietly reflect upon that and quietly reflect upon his goodness. Chris Tomlin last year released a song about the goodness of God. In fact, it was the 2016 Christian Song of the Year. And frankly, it's just a very simple reflection on the goodness of God. And it's called Good, Good Father. So listen now with a quiet heart and reflect on its words.
I hope you feel the goodness of God this morning. Because on our spiritual calendar next Sunday is Palm Sunday. The day Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem for the last time. For the purpose that Jesus spoke of in John 10, 10 through 11 in the Living Bible. Jesus said, my purpose is to give life in all its fullness. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And Jesus did just that on the Friday before Easter, the day that Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for us. And curiously, that day is called Good Friday because it wasn't good for Jesus who suffered horribly that day and died. But it's called Good Friday for us. For it is the day that Jesus sacrificed himself, the good shepherd, for the forgiveness of all our sins. And God, in all of his goodness, through Isaiah 49, 15, and 16 in the NIV, says this, hundreds of years before Jesus went to the cross. I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. And when Jesus went to the cross, and died on the cross, they put nails in his hands, engraving the goodness that he hoped for you and me, leaving our sin there. So God is a very good father to us all. And his son Jesus is our very good shepherd. And we are to keep that goodness right before our eyes, our heart, our mind, all the time. For goodness of God in you, is a radically transformative power for your life. Will you pray with me? Great God, we thank you so much for your goodness. And Father, it's something we can kind of here and there see and think about, but help us, Father, to realize that it really needs to be before us all the time, that your goodness is not something that makes us passive, it's not something that creates problems, but it's a real power for our living and for our life. Help us, Father, to receive your goodness and to share it with others because it will transform not only us, but it will transform those around us. And so, Father, we thank you so much for your love. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming on Good Friday and engraving the goodness you hope for us on your hands, leaving our sin there so that we can become the people that you want us to be. We want that too, Father. So move with us now. Move with us this week. In greater goodness, to your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.